0: Good morning, church. My name is Tando. I'm from Live Group, for the Live Group. We are led by Mr. Mamba. Our Bible reading is from Amos chapter 5, verse 4 to 25. <coughs> for thus say the Lord to the house of Israel seek me and leave, but do not seek Bethel, and do not end and giggle or cross over to Bethsheba, for Giga shall surely go to exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he breaks out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour, with with none to quench it for Bethel. Or you will turn justice to homewood, and cast down righteous to the earth. You who made the pillars and Orients and turn deep darkness into morning. And darkens the day into night. The call for water of the sea pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves the gate, and they harbor, they harbor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you who tremble on the poor, who exact taxes of grain from him, you will build houses of hand stones, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted place in vineyards, but you shall not drink the wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You have afflicted the righteous. You you take a, a bribe. You turn aside the need in the gate. Therefore, you will prudent will keep the silence in such time, for it is an evil time. Seek good not evil that you may leave so the lord the god of hosts will be with you as you have said hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate it is it may be that that the day oh sorry it may be that the lord god of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of joseph therefore thus say the lord the god of hosts the lord in all squares they shall be wailing, and all the streets they, sh- they shall say, Hailers, Eilers, they shall call the farmers to mourning, and wailing those who are skilled in, rem- in lamentation, in all violence. They shall wailing, for I will pass through the midst, say the Lord. Woe to you desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkened, not light, as if a man fled from lion and met him and went to the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent, a serpent bite him. It is not the day of the Lord, darkness, darkened, darkness and the light, not light and gloom with brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast, and take no delight in your solemn. Assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offering, I will not accept them. The peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your hips I will not listen. But let it roll down like waters, the righteousness like ever flowing streams. Did you bring this? Did you bring me sacrifice and offerings during forty years in the wilderness? Oh. House of Israel, this is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Tando. Uh, let's pray together. What a powerful name! What a wonderful name! What a beautiful name! The name of Jesus. Father, we come to you only in the name of your Son. This morning, we come in the rags of our failings of the past week. And we long once again for you to cast aside those rags and to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Father, we appeal to you in his mercy, uh, in his graciousness, in his kindness to sinners. We only come to you on that basis and ask that you would meet with us once again this morning. Break us to build us up, Lord. Cut our hearts once again that we might leave here rejoicing in Christ and full of zeal to live for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Amos, chapter, Amos is chapter 3. We're in chapter 3 of the book of the 12, the 12 minor prophets. And the theme of the book, we've said it time and time again, we've said it every week, is the death and resurrection of Israel. Amos is the chapter that deals most directly with that theme. Amos prophesies to the death and resurrection of Israel. Before we get into that and why it has any bearing on our lives today here in Midrand, as usual, some history is helpful to us. So, 10 centuries BC, a thousand years before Christ, Israel is a great and glorious and united kingdom under David and Solomon. But that golden age only lasts 100 years, and then In the 9th century BC, the kingdom splits. So you remember this. The 10 northern tribes, they break away from Benjamin and Judah in the south because Rehoboam, the king of the south, the Judean king, wanted to treat them as slaves, not as brothers. It was a division that had its roots all the way back in the sins of his grandfather, King David. So the 10 northern tribes, they break away. And they break away under a king called Jeroboam. The problem for Jeroboam, if you're thinking strategically, the problem for Jeroboam is that the house of worship, the center of worship, is still in the south. It's still in Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. But of course, Jeroboam wants a clean break. And so, and this is political genius what he does, what does he do? He sets up a mock temple an alternative site of worship on his southern border. So if if Israel is like this in the north and Judah and Benjamin are are in the south, just in the southern border, just inside the border of northern Israel, he sets up this alternative site of worship in a place called Bethel. What does that mean? It means that everyone who's traveling south on the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem is going to get as far as Bethel and they're going to say, hmm, I don't know about that queue. Right, I'm not so keen on that queue, and I really don't want to deal with customs. I've got everything I need here. I'm going to go as far as Bethel. That's as far as I'm going. Political genius. Jeroboam went so far as to place a golden calf at Bethel in the south, and another one up in Dan, the far northern extremity of the kingdom. So he's got one at both borders. And he says to the people, And these are words that are going to sound a little familiar to us, I presume. What does he say to them? He says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Those words sound familiar? Those are the very words that Aaron spoke to Israel when they broke the covenant at Mount Sinai. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's golden calf idolatry. Not the best way to start their relationship with the Lord for this newfound kingdom called Israel. About 150 years later, Jeroboam II takes the throne of Israel. He is an outstanding general and they win a number of really significant military battles, successes. With that military success comes a whole lot of economic prosperity So much so that the people begin to believe that they must have the blessing and favor of the Lord. That they are about to re-enter the golden age of David and Solomon. And all that remains is for God to judge their enemies, the outstanding enemies, the remaining enemies. That's what they're waiting for. That becomes the national hope. And they call it the day of the Lord. Enter Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, which is across the border in the south. In 760 BC, he comes to Bethel in the north with a message from the Lord for Israel. And this is how it starts. He doesn't pull any punches. Chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord. Are you with me there? Follow along. Helpful to see it in the text. Chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and I will devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, and I will break the gate bar of Damascus. I will cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. You can imagine the excitement. Damascus is in Syria. Syria is an enemy of Israel. This is it. This is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has arrived. Amos follows it up with this word. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Gaza, another enemy of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord, it must be. What else can it be? And then Amos brings another word for Tyre, for Edom, for Ammon, for Moab, all enemies of Israel. And if you look at the geography, it's a closing circle. The noose of God's judgment is closing on the enemies of Israel. It's the day of the Lord. Next, is- Amos tells Israel that judgment is coming to Judah. He goes one better. Judgment is coming to Judah. They think finally that arrogant younger brother of mine is going to get what's coming to him. The day of the Lord is going to humble that boy. Amos has one more word. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Sorry, hang on a second. Amos, I thought you said Israel. And of course he did say Israel. The circle kept closing until it reached its focal point. The focal point of God's judgment in Israel. And suddenly it becomes clear. The noose of God's judgment was tightening, but it was tightening around the neck of Israel herself. The message of Amos, judgment is coming to Israel. Death is coming to Israel. And it did. These were not empty words. Forty years after this prophecy, the ten northern tribes were utterly destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Never to be seen again. You say to me, that's nice, um, but there's a reason I didn't take history in high school. What does any of that have to do with me? Let me say much in every way. But just, just to give you a taste, we'll get to the gist of it in a moment, but just to give you a taste, let me give you one example, and it resonates With what we were saying last week. The message is this, or the relevance is this. Clearly, we need to be very careful when applying the judgment of God to others. Think about what we've just heard in Amos chapter 1. God's judgment is not ours to apply. We can warn of the dangers, and we must, but only as those who ourselves are barely escaping through the flames. Only as those who genuinely want to see others escape along with us. Too often we are like Israel, we tend to weaponize the judgment of God against our enemies. First lesson of this passage for us, be very careful if you are putting up a hangman's noose Of God's judgment for others. Remember what our Lord Jesus has said to us. You will be judged by the measure you use for others. So be very careful if you are erecting that hangman's noose for others. That noose could end up around your own neck. Like it did for Israel. Like it did for Haman. In the story of Esther. It's a wonderful story but it's a story for another day. God has much to say to us, and he's got much more to say to us through Amos. We're going to look at, through it, look at it through the very simple, triangular lens of the sin of Israel, the death of Israel, and the resurrection of Israel. Those three, the sin, the death, and the resurrection of Israel. The sin of Israel, what are their sins? Well, if you've read the book, many and various. But there are two that Amos really drills into, that he highlights. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Israel trample on the head of the poor. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And in Israel, a man and his father go into the same girl, a pagan temple prostitute, so that my holy name is profaned. The two sins that Amos spotlights. Oppression of the poor and idolatry. Idolatry and oppression of the poor. Now, it's important, it's really important for us to see how those two are linked. And we can see it in the passage that Tandor read for us. Chapter 5, verse 4, if you go back there. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 4. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal. Do not cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. And then skip down to verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. So, if you seek the Lord, you will seek justice. You will seek the good of your neighbor. Seek the Lord, seek the good of your neighbor. If, on the other hand, you worship the false gods of Bethel, the gods of sex and war and weather, gods who were constantly scheming against one another and scrapping amongst each other for self-enrichment, gods of the soap opera, if you worship them, you're going to end up like them. This is one of the fundamental principles of the Bible. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. And so if you worship, if you seek the Lord, the God of hosts, who cares and gives and loves If you worship him, you will begin to care and give and love. You become what you worship. If you worship the Lord, you will begin to become an agent of justice and righteousness because he is the God of justice and righteousness. We see this connection again in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 5. I hate Bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You shall take up Sikketh as your king. And Kian, your star god, shall your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You see, not only were Israel engaged in the worship of false gods... They were also engaged in false worship of the one true God. Now what do we mean by that? We mean that they wanted God as part of their collection, their collection of household gods. They wanted to put him there in the cabinet with all the other religious bric-a-brac. And so they, they paid him off with their sacrifices and their offerings and their feasts. But the Lord, the God of hosts, the God Almighty, cannot be bought. And their treatment of the poor exposed their hypocrisy, exposed the fact that they were not worshipping the Lord. If they had worshipped him, worshipped him as he truly is, truly worshipped him as he truly is, Chapter 5, verse 24, what would happen? Justice would roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Do you see the connection between idolatry and oppression of the poor? You worship a false God, you hate your neighbor. Where did Israel go wrong? Where did the weeds of idolatry and oppression start to grow? It's an important question for us. Go to chapter 6 and let's read from verse 1. Listen to the language here. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock. And calves from the midst of the stall. Verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. So where did they go wrong? They started to trust in their military prowess and their economic success. They started to believe that they had done it all themselves and the Lord was rewarding their efforts. All of this prosperity was a sign of God's favor. They were God's chosen people, and the prosperity was proof. They became presumptuous. They became proud. In a word, and it's our key word this morning, in a word, they became complacent. Complacent, the title of, I've titled this sermon, Don't Be Complacent, Run to Jesus. Complacence, complacency, complacent are key words for this morning. They were complacent. They were secure in their success. And so their hearts started to wander. They decided to diversify their portfolio. The Lord, yes the Lord, absolutely the Lord, but also these other high-performing investments. You see? And they trusted themselves to make that choice rather than trusting in the Lord's choice of them. His calling to them. So if you sum up what happened to Israel, it's it's kind of these two movements. First movement, they grew complacent in their religion and their comfortable life. And that became fertile soil for the second movement, which was the breakdown between love for God and love for neighbor. Complacency was fertile ground for idolatry and oppression. They moved from complacency into a love for God that had grown cold into a love for neighbor that had grown cold. There's so much in all of that for us, isn't there? What would that look like in our context? Well, Let's start with complacency. This is the heart of the warning in Amos, and it's a real danger for us. It's a real danger for us. We are middle-class or upper-middle-class Christians living in the suburbs of a nation that believes that Christianity is a set of ethical values that you are raised up into. Isn't that what our nation believes? Isn't that what we believe from time to time? And in that frame of mind... How easily we fall into complacency and into false worship. We try, we do this very subtly, but we try and buy God off so that we can put him next to our other household gods. He's there as lifestyle insurance. And the premium you pay is your religious activity. Church attendance, service in some ministry, tithing, acts of kindness, And so on. It's the perfect arrangement. Because in the T's and C's, in the fine print of that contract, the creator of the universe becomes my private banker. Or my executive life coach. My personal trainer. My armed response. My fixer. My hatchet man. My concierge. My mentor. Pay your subscription, and this person is at your beck and call. He's here to help me keep the lifestyle that I've earned with my hard work. Or if I haven't quite arrived yet, and who of us thinks we've arrived, he's here to help me reach my goals. The God of the universe becomes a means to an end, right? He's here to help me get that thing that I really worship. Whatever that may be. Do you want to know what he thinks of our complacent, comfortable, middle-class religion? It's in chapter 5, verse 21. I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The worst part about our complacency is what it does to our relationship with our Lord. And what it does to our relationship with each other, with our neighbors. Remember what the king said. Love the Lord your God with all all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets like Amos hang on these two commandments that's what he said now what we want to notice is the order and the unbreakable bond Between those two commandments. The order and the unbreakable bond. The first commandment is the first. And the second is the second. You can't reverse them. Truly loving God as he truly is will lead to loving your neighbor. But loving your neighbor without loving God is just another form of idolatry. You can't change the order. But that said... The two are inseparable. You cannot claim to love God if you don't love your neighbor. There's something horribly deficient, something horribly distorted in our love for God if we don't love our neighbor. Are we truly loving God as he truly is if we don't love our neighbor? Because to love someone is to care about the things they care about and God cares about your neighbor. Now we might ask, But who is my neighbor? And Jesus has answered that exact question for us, hasn't he? In the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even our enemies are neighbors worthy of love. When we are complacent, we don't love God as he truly is, and so we don't love our neighbors as we ought to. We try and manipulate God with our religion, and people are also just a means to an end. Complacency feeds the illusion that I'm in control. And then I try and take that illusion and apply it to God by manipulating Him with my religion. And I apply it to others because they're only there to serve my interests. I love those where there's some sort of quid pro quo, where they're satisfying some sort of need in me. Those are the ones I love. I'm in control, after all. Amos has a strong warning against that kind of complacent religion, the kind that abuses God's kindness and mistreats its neighbor. To that he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and ran into a bear. Or fled from a lion and ran into his house and put his hand up against the wall, catching his breath, and was bitten by a snake. It is not the day, is not the day of the Lord darkness? It is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Gloom with no brightness in it. Prophet Amos says, Don't long for judgment. That is not going to be a happy day for you. It's strong stuff, and as we said earlier, it wasn't an empty threat. The sin of Israel led to the death of Israel in no uncertain terms. There's a well-respected pastor who preached on Amos like we are this morning, and he titled his sermon, God Cares. Now, you've read at least some of Amos, even if you've only read what we read this morning. Is that the title you would have given it? God Cares. I can tell you that's not the first thing that sprang to my mind. God cares. But when you stop to think about it, it's true. God's judgment is evidence of his care. In our society, what do we see in fathers who don't love their children? Predominantly, we see a range of things, but what do we see predominantly? What does it look like? It looks like absence. When our fathers don't care, they take off. They disappear. They're not around. They're too busy with other things. They're too busy to take on their responsibility. A father who loves expresses that love in a whole number of ways. But one of those ways is discipline. Now, of course, I'm not talking about abuse. That's a very different thing from discipline. I'm talking about discipline. And in discipline, you love your child enough to cross their will when they are doing something wrong. Because that something will be damaging to themselves or damaging to those around them. And so you cross their will. The opposite of love is not judgment. The opposite of love is indifference. I couldn't care Absence. God cares enough to get involved, to intervene, to save us from ourselves. Listen to how he warned Israel with lesser judgments. We spoke about them last week at length. But you see them in Amos repeatedly. So go to chapter 4 with me. And listen to how he warns Israel. He intervenes out of care for them to save them from damaging themselves and damaging those around them. Chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you, are you there? Sorry, we're jumping around quite a bit, I know. Chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That's just idiom for famine. Nothing in your teeth because you're not eating. And lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I, verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you. Verse 8, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and milled you, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent you, verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In his compassion and care, God warned Israel with lesser judgments trying to preserve them, trying to rescue them from this great judgment. He warned them over and over and over again. But they continued. They loved their complacent religion. And so, verse 12, Therefore, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And they did. In 722 AD, Assyria invaded and Israel died. They chose sin and in the end, sin always leads to death. The sin and death of Israel is the message of Amos. And I'm sure you can agree with me, it's an utterly hopeless message. It is hopeless. Until the last five verses. Let's read those together. Chapter 9, verse 11. We are utterly hopeless until we read these words. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, such is the abundance. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Israel are dead. The hope of resurrection comes from the tent of David. It's a hope not just for Israel. It's a hope for her enemies as well. Remember back in Amos chapter 1 where we started, Edom was the fourth nation to be judged. But here, by the end of the book, or the end of the chapter, verse chapter 9 verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. God will raise his enemies from the dead. This is how God treats his enemies. Amos ends with hope for Israel and hope for the nations. This hope arrives on the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord finally did arrive, it was once again full of surprises. That king in the line of David wasn't straight out of the golden age. He was a builder from some obscure town called Nazareth, some backwater. A working class man from nowhere. He didn't rain judgment on the enemies of God. He was a friend to sinners. He loved his father with his whole heart. And so he loved his neighbor completely, fully, utterly, to the point of death. He put the noose of God's judgment around his own neck and he hung there for his enemies. He bore the curse of God and he won the blessings of God for those who deserved the curse. He won a stay of execution. Final judgment was postponed, put back. The day of the Lord split into two parts, like the temple curtain the morning and the evening. In the morning, Jesus himself stood in the prisoner's dock. In the evening, he is coming to take his seat on the judge's bench. He begs us, embrace me now in the morning so that you won't have to face me in the evening. Embrace me now so that I can give you the blessings of the morning and spare you the curses of nightfall. My brothers and sisters, if any of that is true, if any of that is true, where is complacency? If God loves us like that, what room is there for lukewarm? Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he isn't. If he isn't, what are we doing here? We're just playing some elaborate social game to comfort ourselves. It's wish fulfillment. It's the opiate of the masses. It's pathetic. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then Nietzsche was right. God is dead, and this play-play religion is for children and cowards. We're better off going and, t- and having the courage to make a life for ourselves. But if Jesus is who he says he is, that's an even more uncomfortable and shocking truth. Even more reason to stop playing games and to get real. If Jesus is who he says he is, everything, everything changes. Everything. Casual is gone. Half-hearted is gone. Sunday consumer Christianity is gone. Hedging your bets Gone. God as your insurance policy or your executive life coach is gone. The Savior has come. The judge is coming. The resurrection of the king means the death of complacency. The Christian faith is not a dating game. It's not what you do when you have a free weekend. It is deepest allegiance to the king because... The king is your older brother and he loved you to the point of death. Either it's true or it's not true. It can't be half true. If it's true, it's the end of complacency. Jesus is all in. If that's true, we're all in. There's no other way to relate to him. He's the king of the universe. He's not going to be satisfied with a tentative commitment. I'll pencil you in. And so in Amos, as in all the other prophets so far, there is a warning and there's hope. Amos was written first to Israel. They were the covenant people of God. Amos is also written to us. We are the covenant people of God. Israel grew complacent. Then they flirted with false worship. Then they ignored and oppressed the poor. Israel died in their sin. The warning to us is this. The judge is is coming back. He's coming back. What will he do with comfortable, complacent Christians who say, Lord, Lord, I knew you. He'll say, but I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The warning is powerful. The hope is even more powerful. The judge himself has made a way. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your trust in him. Devote your loyalty to him. He bore the darkness of the day of the Lord for your complacency and mine. And now he's close to you. He's holding you. He's walking with you. He will never let you go. And thanks be to God that he is close to us in our midst by his Spirit, holding us, walking with us, refusing to let us go, because in the presence of the King, there is no complacency. And as we close, just listen, listen again to where he's taking us. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds good to me. (laughs) And as the Apostle Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that his death means our resurrection our new life. Father, in our clearer, better moments, we hate our complacent, half-hearted Christianity. We ask that by your Spirit, you would show us the glory of the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, and what it means to rest in him, to walk with him, so that we can be rid of lukewarm forever. Help us in Christ to worship you with a whole heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.